For those of you that are new, my name is Aaron. Uh, I have the privilege of being the pastor here. It's one of the highest honors of my life. Those of you joining us online or if you're sitting outside, wherever you're at today, we love you. We're so glad that you're with us. Those of you that are online, whether you're on vacation or or whether you're just still having church from home, just know that we miss you and we love you and we can't wait till we can see you physically again. Because uh, what God is doing here, I, I hear from more people every single Sunday that you can't get what happens here online. You can get information online. You can hear the message online. You can even listen to the music online. But you can't get what's in this room or what's on this campus online. There's something happening here that's powerful. If you haven't got a journal yet, we've got Ephesians journals available for you outside. They're free of charge. I would encourage you to take notes every single week of what God is speaking to you about these messages. If you've got a Bible, uh, we are going to position ourselves to get the most out of this message. I mean, why, why waste your time? You know, like why show up for the next 30, 40 minutes and, and not get a whole lot out of it? If you're here make it valuable. If you're here, get the most out of it. One of the ways we do that is we declare that we are open to hearing and receiving God's word. There's something powerful about declarations. We do this in every one of our freedom conferences. We declare God's truth over our life. Because here's what you need to understand. James says the tongue is little, itty bitty, but it's like the rudder of a massive ship. It may be the smallest part of that ship, but it can steer and control the entire direction. You got this little like piece of flesh and skin in your mouth. But how many know it can alter the entire course of your life? Like it steers your life. And so there's a lot of power in our tongue. And so if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and hold it up with me. And we are going to declare the truth of God's word as we prepare ourselves to receive. So say this with me. This is my Bible. Bible. I am what it says I am. I I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Let me stop for a moment. If you just believe that right there, how radically different would your life be? Come on. All right, let's keep going. Holy Spirit, illuminate God's word taught today and activate it in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give it up for God's word. I tell you, I love the Bible. You can build your life on truth. You can build your life on a solid rock that does not change when generations change, when cultures change, when science changes. God's word stands the test of time, and you can count on it every time. We're finishing up chapter one today of Ephesians. Uh, Let's dive in. We're looking at verses 15 to 23. And so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to break it down and go through it. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably, incomparably. You cannot compare it. Great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who lifts, fills everything in every way. Now, what's very fascinating about chapter one, Ephesians is written in the original Greek language. And if you read this in the original Greek, chapter one is only two or three sentences at most. We looked at one of the longest sentences in the entire New Testament, verses 3 to verses 14 for a couple weeks. Today we're looking at a very, uh, another very long sentence. Not as long as that one, but it's another long sentence, and we're going to break it apart and look at it. Now, to understand what it's saying, you've got to know the grammatical heart of the sentence, because it's long. And so you've got to figure out what's the subject, what's the predicate, what's this all about. And you, you find it in verse 18. So if you've got a Bible, look at it with me. We just read it. Uh, Paul says, I pray that you may know. I pray, Paul says, that you may know. So there's something that Paul wants you to know. There's something that's very, very important to him that you figure out, that you know, that you understand, that it is revealed to you. Now, what's very interesting about Paul, when you study his prayers in the Bible, he prays for us, the church, in uh, Colossians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1. He prays here in Ephesians 1 and even again in Ephesians chapter 3. What's very interesting about Paul's prayer, if you study them, he never ever prays for your circumstances. Think about that for a moment. If you look at all of Paul's prayers, he does not pray over the circumstances of the church. Now, we do know from history that their circumstances were terrible. They were living in very, very difficult times. They had oppression. They had evil emperors, Nero. They were living in poverty. They were being persecuted. They were being martyred. They had a very tough and a very difficult life. Their circumstances were terrible. And yet every time Paul prays for them, he never prays for their circumstances to change. Now, he's not giving us a precedent that it's not, you're not supposed to pray over circumstances because we know in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught, we are to pray for daily bread. Paul even teaches Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for government, pray for, pray for the leaders who are over you in, in high places of authority and power. So he's not saying not to do it. He just understands something that is so powerful that he realizes if you know this, what he's praying for, if you know this, if you get this, it doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are if you have this. That's powerful. You see, we want God to change our circumstances. God, change the government. God, change my situation. God, give me a job. God, I need money. God, I've got this going on. I've got... And Paul realizes that if you have what he's praying for, it doesn't matter if you have good circumstances or bad circumstances. This is so important, it'll overcome every circumstance of your life. Here's the point. No matter how bad your life will be, or how bad it can get, or how bad the circumstances and tragic they are, 
Paul understands if you have what he's praying for, you're going to come out on top. You're going to come out stronger and better if you have this. But Paul also realizes that if you have good circumstances, if your life is very, very good, if you don't have this, you're going to turn out shallow and weak. You see, one of the most dangerous things in life is to have good circumstances without this. Because when God blesses you and you have a good life and an easy life and you have really good circumstances without this, you become proud, you become superficial. And what takes place is you become dependent on good circumstances. Anyone that's been around for a while knows that eventually you're going to have some challenges. Eventually you're going to go through some dark times. And if your faith is built on good circumstances, when you go through those hard times, you're going to fall into despair. So Paul realizes if you have this. If you have this, the truth is without it, it'd be better for you to have bad circumstances because you'd be closer to God. One of the worst things possible for you without this is to have good circumstances because of what it would produce inside of you. So what is it? What, what is this thing that Paul is praying for? Well, what, is it, what does he want us to know? What does he want us to understand? What is so important to him that this supersedes circumstances of our life? Well, he shows us three things that he's Three things about it that I want to answer. First is, who has this? And what is this? It's riches. It's treasure. It's a deposit that God makes inside of a certain group of people. And the question is, who? Who gets this deposit? Who gets this treasure inside of them? Second, what is the treasure? What is this deposit? What, what, is, what is Paul talking about that we need to understand, that we need to see that's been placed inside, and then finally, how do you withdraw it? So if you've got this incredible deposit in your life, you've got this, this, this treasure, this riches that has been hidden inside of you, how do you access it? Like, how do you withdraw it? It's like having millions of dollars in the bank account, but you don't have an ATM card. Like, you've got no way to get it. You got it. It's there, but you can't enjoy it. You can't use it. You can't spend it because you don't have access to it. So it's not enough to have it if you don't have access to it. So how do you withdraw it? How do you activate it in your life? And this is going to be powerful. So first, number one, who has the riches? Who has the treasure? Who has, what specific group of people is Paul talking about that has received this deposit of riches, of treasure, uh, of these, these good things from God? Who has it? Well, let's look at verse 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard I want you to notice Paul doesn't say, I know. He says, I heard. This is one of the reasons why we believe this is a circular letter, meaning Paul is writing to churches he hasn't been to. Now, he's been to Ephesus, and he knows a number of Christians at the church in Ephesus, but it's a circular letter that is being carried around to different churches in the area, people that Paul has never met before. So he doesn't know them personally, but he's heard something about them. I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on to pray all of these wonderful things over their life. He begins to pray this incredible thing over their life that is above their circumstances. So here's the question. He doesn't know them personally. How does he know they're in Christ? How does Paul know these group of people that he has heard about are actually Christians? 
How does the, how do, how, and because that answers the question, who has the riches? Who has the deposit? Who has this, this treasure inside? Christians. Because Paul confidently prays over them about this treasure that they have. If he doesn't know them personally, how does he know they're Christian? Well, it's because he heard something about them. You see, verse 15 follows verse 16. Or, or excuse me, uh, verse 16. <laughs> my math is not good today. Verse 16 is based on verse 15. So he confidently prays for them because of something that takes place in verse 15. And it's really important that we take a moment and look at this. Because what Paul does is he gives us two evidences, two signs, two tests, two principles that enable him to decide whether or not these people are Christian. They enable him to figure out whether or not they've received this deposit, whether or not they are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ. And it gives him the confidence then to go on and pray this prayer. So why do we examine this today? Well, I want to help you figure out whether or not you're a Christian. And there's a way to know whether or not you're a Christian. Paul gives two evidences, two examples that will illuminate whether or not you actually have Christianity in your heart or, or whether you're maybe an attender, maybe a religious person, maybe a non-religious person. There's a difference between being a Christian and being everything else. You can attend church and not be a Christian, by the way. I love what Keith Green used to say. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. I know, it's bad, but it's Father's Day and I can tell dad jokes. It works. So how do you know whether or not you are a Christian? Well, Paul gives us two principles, two evidences, two tests, two signs. Number one, faith in the Lord Jesus. And number two, love for all the saints. So first, let's look at faith. Faith. Here's the first principle to help you figure out whether or not you're a Christian or whether or not you're religious. Here's how it starts. The first principle is always about what you believe. It starts with what you believe, meaning faith is primary in defining and evaluating Christianity. Always in the Bible, our behavior, our life, our obedience never comes first. Faith comes first. It always begins with what we believe. That is the basis of our Christianity. So let me put it like this. It is more important what we believe than how we are living. Far more important what we believe than how we live our life. You see, it is what you believe more than how you are living that reveals you to be or makes you a Christian. Now, I know some of you are struggling with that right now because you've heard the exact opposite in our culture. Because what our culture, what our world says today is it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you follow as long as you live a good life. It, 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 you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It matters how you live. That's what our world says. That's why we have the bumper sticker coexist. It doesn't matter which path you choose. It just matters that you're kind. It matters that you're good. It matters that you, you live a nice life and you're, you're, you're a decent person. That, so how you live is so much more important than what you believe. And the Bible says that is absolute nonsense. There's nothing further from the truth. The Bible says what you believe is so much more important than how you live 
your life. And here's why. What I believe determines what I do. Everything in your life flows out of your belief system. You know, I tell this story a lot because it's a great story and it illustrates the point. A few years ago, I was working with a guy in our church who'd been struggling with an addiction for many years of his life, trying to break free of that addiction. And, and he's always doing these different things to, you know, going to camp or going to a retreat or going to this or doing that, trying to break this bondage in his life. And I finally sat him down one day and I said, do, do you realize the issue is not your behavior? The issue is not this addiction. The issue is not what you're doing. That, that's not your problem. Your problem is what you believe. It's not the addiction that's the problem of your life. It's what you believe that is the problem of your life. And at that time, he recently got a brand new truck. It was a diesel truck. And so I asked him, I said, well, you got this, this new truck out here, right? He, he said, yeah. I said, I said uh, when you go to the gas station, what kind of gasoline do you put in it? He goes, well, I put diesel in it, of course. I said, why do you put diesel in it? He goes, because it's a diesel truck. I said, well, how do you know it's diesel? He said, well, the guy that sold it to me told me it was diesel, and there's a book in the glove box that says it's diesel. I said, wait a second. You didn't take apart the engine to make sure? You're just accepting by faith what some guy told you? You're just believing by faith what some book says? I said, let me ask you this. The first time you went to the gas station in your new truck, I mean, for the last 10 years of your life, you've been doing unleaded gas, unleaded gas, unleaded gas. The first time you went in your new truck, did you struggle? Like, like did, you have to, did you have to exercise self-control and willpower because you're so used to grabbing the unleaded hose? Did you have to, like, wrestle yourself to grab the diesel hose? He said, no, I just put diesel in it. I said, why? Because it's a diesel truck. I said, do you see what the problem is? You believe something about the truck, and it changed your behavior overnight. You're not doing unleaded gasoline anymore. Why? Because you believe it's diesel. I said, that's the problem. You don't believe you're a diesel. You still believe you're unleaded, and that's why you keep putting unleaded in the tank, and you're destroying your engine. What you believe determines what you do. Now, let me also say it's a gradual process. It does not happen overnight. If someone says, look, I trust you, but they never call you, when they're in a crisis, do they really trust you? Is, is that what they really believe? Because life flows out of our beliefs. So the first thing is faith is primary. What you believe is so much more important than how you live in determining whether or not you're a Christian. Now, I know some of you are really nervous right now. Hold on, take a deep breath. We're going to go there in a minute. Like, I'm going to help you put it all together in a minute. So just don't, don't freak out just, just yet. Let me, but let me, let me go a little bit further with this. What is the belief? Because it's not just believing anything. What is the belief? What is the belief that determines whether or not we are a Christian? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people would say this. They would say, well, you know, don't Christians have to believe the Bible? Well, Jesus believed and trusted the Bible, so you could say that Christians should trust the Bible, but the question is, do you have to become a Christian by believing and trusting the Bible? And the answer is absolutely not. No. And it would be a terrible mistake to try to believe that. Other people say, well, isn't it true that Christians are people who should live good lives? Christians are kind and caring and compassionate and generous and honest, trustworthy. 
Well, absolutely, yes, because if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus tells us that we need to live good lives, that we need to be honest and kind and caring and generous and trustworthy in everything we do. But do you become a Christian by being a good person, by being kind and trustworthy and honest and, and compare? Absolutely not. This is a huge issue. People wrestle with this all over America today. See, if you ask the average person, here's what they say. Well, how do you find God? How do you become a Christian? What they'll say, well, you need to go to church, and you need to become like Christ, and you need to read the Bible, and you need to pray, and, and, and then you need to live this life, and that's how you become a Christian. A lot of people will say that. Do you know what that means? That means you have absolutely no faith at all in the Lord Jesus because you've placed your faith entirely in yourself. That's all that means. If you think that coming to Jesus means you've got to come to church and be faithful and be obedient, pray and read your Bible and do all these things, then you're putting faith in you and not in Jesus. You see, what real belief says is I can't do any of this. I'll never be good enough. I'll never do enough. I can't put my faith in myself. I will let myself down every single time. I'll fail. I will never be religious enough, good enough, or perfect enough for God to accept me. I've got to put faith in Jesus and Jesus alone because I can't do any of this. And that's the key. The first principle is belief. Second is love. He goes on to say, Faith in the Lord Jesus, love for all the saints. So I want to give you a filter when you study the Bible. This is the principle that you need to apply. Faith is primary, but practice is necessary. Faith is primary. Faith is number one. Faith is the only way to become a Christian. Faith in the Lord Jesus. But if I have faith, remember what we said, your belief determines your behavior, your belief determines what you do. If I have faith in the Lord Jesus, practice will follow. I will, I will gradually begin to change and transform into his image, and my life will change, my behaviors will change, my attitudes will change, my actions will change. You see, it's what you believe that determines what you do. Faith is primary, but practice is necessary. Let me give you an example, because again, this is a gradual process, and because it's gradual, sometimes we, we doubt, we second-guess ourselves. I want you to imagine a guy who has this terrible belief. He's got, he's, got, he's got a belief that is wreaking havoc all over his life. He believes that all women are out to get him. And, and this, this belief is just messing him up. It's destroying all of his relationships. It's affecting his life. It's, it's giving him anxiety and stress. And it's totally out of line with reality. Totally, totally out of court. So he goes to a therapist and he spends six months in therapy. And all of a sudden, one day, the therapist helps him. And he has this, this light, light moment where he finally figures it out. And he realizes, no, it's not... It's not all women that are out to get me. It was one woman that was out to get me. Now, some of you should see this therapist because it would help you. But he has this new belief, this, this new idea. Now, let's ask the question, is he going to be 100% different overnight? No, because it takes time to work out a new belief into our life. He's, he's at times going to revert back to old habits and old ways of thinking and old ways of doing things, but a process began. The new belief took root, and there is gradually going to be a change in his life. And that's what many of us saw when we had this new belief, this faith in the Lord Jesus, is that gradually our life began to change. 
The way we view money has changed. The way we view time has changed. The way we view marriage has changed. The way we view parenting. Things in our life have gradually begun to change. So the principles are faith and love. Now, here's the problem. Many of us will err on one side of the equation. Some people will err on the faith side and, 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 and say it's all faith, nothing to do with practice. Some people err on the practice side. It's all practice. And, and if you practice, then you have faith. Both are wrong, but let's look at them for a moment. You got one side of people who become very, very judgmental, very, very judgmental. And you hear them make statements like this, that person can't be a Christian. Oh, he could never be a Christian. Look what he just did. Oh, she could never be a Christian. Look what she just did. A Christian would never do that. How many of you have ever heard someone say that? Christian would never do something like that. Well, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but it's not mine. Because you read about the guys and girls in the Bible, they, they did some pretty awful stuff. You know, they did some pretty messed up things. They, they, they were broken. You, David, Peter, Abraham, they were some broken, broken people. Because you got to remember, it's not practice that makes us a Christian. It's belief. The very idea of thinking that a person can't be a Christian because they did this or they did that shows you you don't understand the gospel at all. Shows you you don't understand Christianity at all. On the other side, if you really do believe, if you really do have faith in the Lord Jesus, even though it's gradual, your life really does begin to change. Some areas quicker than others, but you begin a process of change and transformation in your life. Let me give you two biblical ground rules or guidelines that every denomination of Christianity, from Catholics to Protestants, throughout all of history, from the very beginning of the book of Acts till now, have absolutely agreed are, are Christian morals, values, and principles that we should live by, not for salvation, but because of salvation. First off, don't have sex outside of marriage. And in our world today, we have to say a biblically defined marriage because we've redefined marriage. And so I'm talking about the biblical definition of marriage. One man, one woman don't have sex outside of that. Number two, you must forgive completely no matter what someone has done to you. Every group of Christianity for all of history has agreed with those two things, as these are values of Christianity. So here's the point. If you are a professing Christian, if you say, I am a Christian, and yet you're regularly having sex outside of marriage or indulging in grudges, bitterness, and offense, don't say, well, I'm saved by faith. Yes, you are saved by faith, not by your practice, not by your life. But if your life isn't changing, should you flatter yourself that you have faith? That's the point. Because the principle is faith is primary, but practice is necessary. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, so, so don't hear something I'm not saying. I'm saying you shouldn't be so sure unless you see your life growing. Because faith produces growth, and that is how you know that you have this deposit, this treasure, this, this riches of God placed inside. And again, it may be gradual. And I dealt with addictions and, and issues for years as a Christian, but I was growing. Maybe not in every area of my life, but I was growing, and I got to the place where I did overcome. And I'm still growing in other areas, but I did overcome some things that hung me up for a long, long time. So real quick before we move on to the next point, because we, we, we established the fact that it's faith 
and its love, its, its faith and its practice, they go, go hand in hand. And these are the people who have this riches, who have this deposit. I want to point out one more thing to help you understand the love part. Out of all the examples Paul could have chosen, Paul could have chosen the sex example that we just talked about, but he doesn't. He chooses a very specific example. In verse 15, he says, your love for all the saints. Your love for all the saints. Now, let me help you with this word saint a little bit, because we, we don't understand what the word saint means in the Bible, because we have our own idea of the word saint. You hear people say this all the time, my wife, she's a saint. Well, maybe, okay, but that's not biblical. That's, that's not the biblical definition of the way you're using it, because in the Bible, what the word saint meant is an average Christian. I mean, Paul called the Corinthian saints, and they were messed up. So it's really not that much of a compliment to call somebody a saint. Just saying, if you look at it biblically, it just means they're, 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 the, they're the bare minimum average Christian. That's all the word saint means. Paul says, your love for all the saints. A great way to know whether or not the gospel is actually working in your life. A great way to know if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you became a Christian, if you remember, your group identity was very, very important to you. Whatever your group identity was, whether it was your career whether it was your community, whether it was your race, whether it was your, your economic status, your group identity was very important. And as a human being, we all do this, so don't act like you've never done this. It is important for us to feel superior to other groups. That is who we are before we came to Christ. We needed to feel superior. We either needed to feel superior politically, superior educationally, superior racially. We needed to feel superior. This is why artists despise engineers, and engineers despise artists, and one racial group despises that racial group, and the lower class despises the upper class, and the upper class despises the lower class. Why? Because inside of every human being, there's a deep insecurity that expresses itself in disdain for other groups because we need to feel superior. We need to feel like we matter. We need to feel like we we're valuable. A sign of the gospel is when you meet other Christians who are members of other groups that in the past you would have never had anything to do with. They're part of a social group, a racial group, a class of people that you would not have given the time of day to. One of the ways to know that the gospel has taken root of your life is you can now be friends with them. You can humbly listen to them. You can serve them. You, can have a, you don't see them for their group anymore. You have a love for all the saints. Here's the second thing. What is this riches? What is this treasure? What is this deposit that God has put inside of us? Three things Paul says. The hope to which he has called you, that's number one. The riches of his glorious inheritance, that's number two. His incomparably great power, which by the way is for us, that's number three. This is what he wants us to know. Now let me give you a picture of this. I want you to imagine a six-year-old girl living in an orphanage who desperately wants to be adopted. She wants a family. And there's a woman that goes to the orphanage one day because she wants to adopt a little girl. And she meets the six-year-old girl. And they spend a day together. And she gets to know this little girl. And her heart goes out to this little girl. And she wants to adopt this little girl. And at the end of the day, this woman asks this six-year-old girl, I, I just, I, I've gotten to know you. I love you. I'd love you to be a part of my family. Can I adopt you? Will, will you be my daughter? Now, if you're that little six-year-old girl, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, well, can I see your bank accounts first? Uh, you know, I've got plans to go to college one day. What's your, what's your thoughts on college? 
Like, is that something you're going to let me pursue? Or are you going to hold me back? No, not at all. The little girl's going to say, Mama, and jump into her arms. Why? Because children think only about the immediate. That's all they think about. And that's all they should think about. But the Bible says when we come to Christ, we're children. We are newborn babies. And so the truth is when we first meet God, typically all we're really looking for is a little bit of love, a little bit of forgiveness, and maybe some strength to help us with the crisis. Honestly, that's basically all we're looking for when we first meet God. And Paul says the issue in our life is not that you need to try harder, but you need or you need more strength, but you need to realize what you've already been given. Now, what if this woman who adopts this little six-year-old girl is the wealthiest woman in the world? Well, that means nothing to the little six-year-old girl. But over time, the woman has to help the girl understand who she is because of her. Like, you need to understand what you have because of me, who you are because of me, the responsibility that comes by being my daughter, and the same is with God. God, over time, has to help us understand who he is and what he has available and who we are in him. Because when we first come to him, we know very little. Paul basically says it like this. All you know about God is what an infant knows about his mother. Anybody that's had a newborn baby knows that infant doesn't know we were even to school, doesn't know how you and your husband met, Infant does very little about your life. Doesn't know what your favorite color is. Doesn't know what your favorite food is. That infant knows nothing other than this is where I get my milk. That's all a baby knows about his mother. And what Paul is saying is that's all we really know of God when we first come to him. That, that's all we... So you've got to at least be at the point where you can say, you know what? I really don't know the fullness that is available to me. I really don't know the depth of the riches, the depth of the treasure that he's deposited inside of my life. So let's look at these three things. First is the hope to which he has called you. you. There's a hope to which you've been called. Where Paul just gives us one line in Ephesians, but if you go into the letter of Corinthians, he actually breaks this down to what it actually means. So let me show it to you. First Corinthians chapter one, he breaks it down. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. He's talking about the hope of our calling. Not many of you, this is not too encouraging, but it's helpful. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, it's not because of you. It's not because you were good enough, smart enough, you didn't, you, not because you were born into the right family. No, it's because of him who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm redeemed, not because I deserve to be. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only reason we are a Christian is not because we're good, not because we were born in the right family, not because we deserved it, but because we were called to this hope. God called us to this hope, and he loved us in spite of who we were so he could show the world that salvation doesn't consist in being strong and being wise and being good enough. Paul says, I want you to know this hope. I want you to grasp it. Do you know this? Honestly, it's taken me years to work this out in my life, and I still don't even get to the bottom of it, to the depth of it, that it's grace and grace alone. Now, what does this mean practically? Well, just, just real quick, what it means for me is that I can meet a non-Christian who actually lives a better life than me. Because the reason I'm a Christian is not because I'm good. 
The reason I'm a Christian is because I was called to this hope. So any time somebody says, well, you know, they could never be a Christian. They're not the Christian type. I'm not the Christian type. Would be a miracle if they got saved. I'm a miracle that I got saved. We're all a miracle. So it means I can have hope for everyone. The second thing is the riches of his glorious inheritance. This is huge. This, this landed on me like a ton of bricks this week. It's not our inheritance. It's his inheritance. That is one of the most astounding statements in all of the Bible, if you get it. One of the most powerful statements in all of the Bible, if you understand that. And I know for, for like most of you, when I said that, didn't gasp and fall out in, in amazement and shock and pure joy. But you should. To understand the depth of what he's saying right there, I want you to imagine Christmas shopping for Jeff Bezos. And your job is to get him something that is just going to shock him and amaze him. And he's going to be like, I've always wanted one of these. Like, imagine if that was your job. Like, what could you possibly buy him that he's always wanted that'll make him feel wealthy, that'll make him feel valuable, that'll make him feel loved? Well, think about God. What are you going to buy God for Christmas? What could you buy God for Christmas? Well, there is something God does consider his special treasure. Us. Who is God's glorious inheritance? Us. We are his inheritance. We are God. God looks at us and he feels wealthy. He's overwhelmed. Paul is not exaggerating. Look at verse 23. He goes on to say, the church, that's us, Christians, is his body, the fullness of him. We are the fullness of God. In other words, we are his glory. We are his fulfillment. This is... Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous pastor in England, was teaching on this, and he said to the degree you understand this statement is the degree that you will receive strength to not sin. I want you to think about this. To the degree you understand this statement, that we are his fullness, is the degree that you will have self-control over sin in your life. Now, what does this mean? Well, Isaiah explains it. Isaiah 49 says, lift up your eyes and look around all your children gather and come to you as surely as I live, declares the Lord. You will wear them as ornaments. You're going to wear your children as an ornament like a Christmas tree. What does that mean? Our children are our glory. I've been to an awards banquet with a child getting an award, and you see the parents beaming with pride. And I've also been in a courtroom when somebody's being indicted, and you see the parents in utter despair. Why? Because our children are either our beauty or our ugliness. They are our glory. And do you understand what God is doing? God is tying his glory to us. When I live a disobedient life and I violate scripture, I'm saying to the world, my father is ugly. Because he's attached his glory to me. But the comfort of that also, on the flip side, is, is so powerful that to the degree you get it is the degree that you overcome sin in your life. That if I'm the glory of the king, why would I worry about what serfs say or servants or peasants say when I have the favor of the king in my life? Why, why do I worry about all this drama out here when I have the glory of the king in my life? This is powerful. 
And then the third thing, his incomparably great power for us. Now, this is the only one that Paul meditates on. The first two, he just makes a statement, makes a statement. But if you keep reading, he actually meditates on this thought of God's power. In verse 19, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Do you realize the very same power that brought Jesus back to life, God has deposited inside of you? Do you understand that? Do do you realize what your life would look like if you had access to the power that brought Jesus back from the dead, that it has been deposited inside of you, it's available to you? That's why over and over and over, Paul doesn't pray that we receive power. He says, I pray that you realize the power that's already inside you. This deposit is in you, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the and the age to come. So finally, how do we withdraw this incredible treasure? How do I activate it? How do I access it? How do I make it come alive in my life where it's not just this thing deposited inside of me that that I have, but it's something that I can use. It's something that changes my life. How do we learn how to withdraw it? We go back to verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you This is how the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart, these eyes be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What does this mean? We got to know it. It's not enough for me to say, well, I know God loves me, but it just doesn't seem to be enough. Well, that means you don't know it. You may know it in your head, you just don't have it in your heart. Well, I know God's forgiven me, but I still feel guilty. Well, then you don't know God's forgiven you, at least not in your heart. Well, I know God is with me, but I still deal with with fear. Well, that means you don't know God is with you, at least not in your heart, maybe in your head, but not in your heart. Paul is saying to the depth that you know this, it changes and transforms every area of your life. And how it happens is the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So let me give you three things that you can do to partner with the Holy Spirit. Again, you can't work for it. It's grace. But I'll give you three things you can do to partner with the Holy Spirit to see this revealed in your life. Pray this prayer for yourself. Take this prayer in Ephesians 1. And make it personal. Pray it for yourself. God, I pray that you would open my eyes. I pray that you would enlighten me. God, I pray that I would know this incomparably great power that you deposited inside of me. God, I pray that I would know this. Pray it for yourself. Because to the depth that you know this is to the degree that you're going to have self-control, to the degree that you're going to walk in victory, to the degree that you're going to have authority. Again, what you believe determines what you do. It's the power of grace. Those who receive an abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, they're going to live in victory in this life. Second, meditate on these truths. Meditate on them. How do you meditate? Let me me give you the key to meditation, at least what, what what I've used in my life that has really made a difference for me. Take a scripture, take a principle, take a concept, and ask yourself this question, how would my life be different if I really believed this to the depths of my core? 
How would my marriage be different if I really believed this? How would my parenting be different if I really believe this? How would my career be different? How would every area of my life be different if I truly knew this to the very depths of my core? And then I would encourage you to get a journal and list out 20 to 30 things. And I know this takes a little bit of work, but I'm teaching you how to access this. I'm teaching you how to activate it. And again, I'm not going to tell you it works every single time you do it, but I'd say one out of five times when I do this, all of a sudden it moves from my head to my heart and I see change beginning to take place in my life. Finally, Think of Jesus praying this prayer for you. I want you to, to imagine and visualize Jesus praying this prayer for you because he did. If you go back and you study John chapter 17, with different words, Jesus prayed this prayer for you. Now here's the thing. The only way that Jesus could pray this prayer for you was to pray it in reverse for himself. The only way Jesus could pray these three things over your life in forward, was to pray it in reverse for himself. God, bring them to yourself, Father. Call them your own. Make them your great inheritance. Make them your value, your treasure. Support them with your power. Give them your power to, to overcome in life. So therefore, Jesus had to pray, then reject me, cast me away from your family. Discard me to nothing. Cast me away as worthless. Take away all my riches. Give me poverty. And break me with your power. Crush me with your power at the cross. You see, the only way Jesus could pray this over your life was to pray it in reverse over his life. To walk it out in reverse. The reason we're called with hope by God is because Jesus was rejected by God so that we would never be rejected. The reason we can have spiritual riches and, and blessing and this treasure inside is because Jesus abandoned all of his treasure and became poor on our behalf. The reason we can have God's power to overcome is because Jesus had God's power and wrath and judgment fall on him so that it would never fall on us. You meditate on that, it's going to begin to do something inside of you. You're going to start seeing change. It may be gradual, but you're going to start seeing change. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this incredible letter where Paul does his absolute best to help us understand what we have, what is available to us. And God, with our human minds, we're never going to fully comprehend no more than an infant can comprehend who his mother fully is or who her mother fully is. We can never comprehend who you fully are. But Lord, I'm asking that you reveal more to us than what we currently know. More of your riches. More of your glory. More of who we are. More of your great power. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power that you've deposited inside of us. Reveal to us what we have, what is in us, what's available to us so that we can begin to withdraw it and walk it out. With every eye closed, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never surrendered to him, I'm going to ask you to make him king in your life today, to lay down everything you have for him, to follow him, to serve him. If that's you, no one looking around, whether you're online or outside, just go ahead and put your hand over your heart. 
Put your hand over your heart, and I want you to pray this. Pray this inside. God can hear the thoughts of your heart. Say, Jesus, today I give you my heart. I surrender my life, and I invite you to be king. You have permission to rearrange everything in my life to reflect your number one. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that today for the first time, would you tell somebody it's the greatest decision you'll make? The Bible says when you believe in your heart, that's what we just did, confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Would you stand with me? That was the beginning of faith in the Lord Jesus. Now the gradual change will begin. We're going to close out with one song of worship today. I hope you have a great Father's Day. Uh, there's, a, there's a great photos booth to take a picture with Dad today or your family, so stop by on your way out. Love you guys. Glad you're here.